Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is a retired police officer of 31 years and a leading law and order campaigner who specializes in gun and knife crime. Norman Brennan, welcome to Trigonometry. Good morning to you. Thanks very much for coming. We really appreciate your time. For anyone who doesn't know, you just tell us briefly who you are, how are you, where you are, what's been your journey through life that's taken you to this chair? Well, as you introduced me, I'm a retired police officer, 31 years. Um, I joined at the age of 19. I was very streetwise when I joined the job. Um, I'd teamed up with different mates of mine, done a bit of boxing, done different jobs, was a butcher, uh, drove lorries, um, done various jobs and I reached a stage when I was 19 that you know you could go one of two ways. Uh, I was liaising with, with mates, some were criminals believe it or not and uh, others weren't and even the criminals were characters. Um, they weren't bad bad guys but uh, I could see them going down the wrong path and like a lot of people if you hang around with that lot you might find yourself being drawn into problems and I remember one particular time uh, I'd had a row with a large lot of guys and I walked into a pub and I was on my own and it was a massive lot and I was looking for somebody that had torched my moped and I said I'll be back the following week to sort it out and I went back the following week on my own, took no mates and um, it was sorted out but the guy that had torched my bike didn't want to deal with it. One of his mates who thought he was quite tasty did. Fortunately, I could look after myself very well. And the little scuffle, probably a bit more than a scuffle, but no weapons thereafter, um, I came out on top. But of course, I was outnumbered. So I took off, and um, not long later, I actually went back with my team. And fortunately, it didn't kick off thereafter. But I just thought, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, if I get involved in this sort of thing, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. But I wasn't one to ever back down. And I always wanted to be a police officer, and I thought this is not the right way to go. So I joined the police service at the age of 19. Well, you've got the, be the better team now. If yeah. you're a police officer, you can go in there and kick everybody, huh? Some people say we can do it uh, <laughs> lawfully but uh, <laughs> and legally. And believe it or not, that's actually what we do the majority of the times. But yeah, I was 19 years of age. I was positioned all over London. My force was the British Transport Police. I had uh, been accepted by the Met, but I was actually two centimetres too short at that particular time. And lots of people were not joining other forces. So I just basically stayed with my force. I met great guys, great women, and it was a good teamwork. And throughout the whole of my 31 years, I worked in various positions, various stations. Um, I was on a shield unit. Uh, did my training with the Met over in Hounslow, was on a public order squad, travelled around the country, travelled uh, around London uh, with the SHIELD unit. I then went into CID um, as a young detective, uh, did training with the senior DCs, and it was quite funny when I first joined the job, there was these old sweats that used to come in, like Jack Regan and Dennis Waterman, and there was one thing that everybody has always said, in the job is the first thing those detectives said is the job is fucked 
And it's quite funny actually now, because even now, if you actually see T8 or the TJF, the job, even people say that now. And I've always remembered that, and I thought, bloody hell, you must be uh, very disillusioned. Mm. But that was just the character. It was the sort of things that people said in the job. So I then went on to uh, various positions. Um, I was on a robbery squad for six years in North London. I took uh, an interest in victims. Uh, regularly, victims were not given the help and the support that they rightly deserved. And around about the 1980s, police officers were being very seriously assaulted. The push and the punch had become the kick um, and people were being attacked with weapons and in particular knives. And I recall in the early 80s, um, I had just come back from taking the sergeant's exam and I was traveling through Victoria, which has normally got quite a lot of police officers there. But that particular night, all the officers were out on football duties, at football matches, out on public order vehicles. And there was one female officer, they used to call them WPCs now, but we're politically correct now, we call everybody PC, young D. Cobbley. And there was three pickpockets that I actually came across and I attempted to arrest two of them, or all three of them, but I grabbed hold of two of them and I got very seriously assaulted. Um, I went, I kicked the door of the Nick and said, look, I need some assistance. But unbeknown to me, there was one lone female officer there. so. I was very seriously assaulted, um, rushed to hospital that night. I mean, obviously once a police officer is assaulted, certainly in those days, everybody attends, you know, canteens empty, but the canteens weren't full. Everybody was out on other duties. So I ended up in hospital. Uh, I was in intensive care overnight with a double suspected fracture of the skull. Uh, I was in hospital for about 10 days. And um, I came out and the injuries were such that part of my nose had been dislodged and I had to have quite serious surgery. So I was off duty for three and a half months recovering, but because I had to have reconstructive surgery over the following three years, I had to have a further eight months off duty. Uh, parts of my nose had to be cut out and restructured. So as a young PC, I was still enthused with the job, but I realised the enormity of the assaults on police. So I'd over a year off sick, my force were fantastic, my colleagues were absolutely brilliant. And I'd only been back on duty for a number of weeks, and I was an area car driver, and I was out with a new acting inspector that night, showed him around London, and then my own sergeant joined me and we just had a drive out early hours of the morning, it was a hot, um, summer's morning in early September. I remember dealing with a publican and uh, a cab driver as we were driving through Victoria. They'd had a bit of a row. We resolved that. One was drunk. The other one wasn't happy that his fare wasn't paid. Life was good. I had a terrific girlfriend on the firm at the time. I played rugby at a very high level. And life was okay. I was looking at getting promoted within the police. And as I drove uh, down towards Chelsea Bridge, I saw this black guy running across the road, followed by uniformed officers that were quite a distance behind them. And I used to be able to clear 200 metres just outside the UK record. And even in full uniform, I could clear a distance very quickly. So I parked my area car up on the road because I know they didn't 
just want to speak to him, ask him if he's got a license or <laughs> they want to give him a parking ticket. This was quite a serious incident, I thought. Two o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, robbery, burglary, attempt theft of vehicle. So I parked my car across the road of Tight Street, believe it or not, and I got out my car and I chased this guy down Tight Street. But all the cars are parked literally tight against each other, so I couldn't get at him. And he was very fast as well. So I run down the middle of the road and I saw a gap up the, up the, uh, towards the end of the road. So I run between two of the cars and I grabbed hold of him. I didn't have uh, my baton out or anything like that. And because it was dark, I didn't see that he had a knife and he'd, had a, he'd actually uh, committed three aggravated burglaries, which means that you break into properties armed with a weapon, something a householder is very concerned about and rightly so. Anyway, I grabbed hold of him and the next thing I felt was, it's a bit like a stitch in my stomach. He'd actually stabbed me. Oh. So he put the blade in and it was, it was quite strange because everything slows down when you've been stabbed and hundreds of families have asked me what it's like. And it's quite funny, I looked down and I only had my, my summer shirt on and I could see all the blood literally coming out of my chest. And my sergeant was chasing after him and I said, he's got a blade, but I couldn't really speak. I was sort of winded, if it's like. And a lot of people say, what's it like when you've been stabbed and it's serious? And it's the loneliest feeling in the world because you can't talk. Nobody necessarily knows exactly what's happened because everything's happening quick. Pretty much like all the stabbings in London nowadays. It happens so quick. Nobody can really gather the enormity except the victim. And I remember the, I was feeling, I put my hand here and I, could kept, I kept seeing all the blood coming over my fingers. And uh, I thought, this is real bad. Mm. And I actually thought, shit, I'm going to die. I don't talk about it that often, so yeah. And that happened just after I had recovered from the previous assault. And I was in hospital for 10 days off sick for another 12 weeks and I didn't recover from that one and I thought something's got to be done. Too many police officers are being assaulted, their lives are being destroyed, some were, some were murdered and I'd recovered and the gift that I've always been given since that day is this, is that um, I've done thousands of interviews, probably 10,000 interviews and what people don't understand is people can say whatever they like to me People have tried to destroy my career because I've had the backbone to stand up and challenge the establishment, is that when you face death and you survive, every day is a gift. So whatever anybody ever does thereafter, they can't hurt you more than what somebody nearly did. Anyway, getting back to the point is, I got demoralized, I got depressed and I started losing the will to be a police officer. You know, I was young, I put the first down to bad experience, the second one really took the wind out of us, literally, and um, I got very demoralized. So what I did is I went to the police service, I said, somebody's got to do something about this. So I set up Protect the Protectors, you always hear the sign Protect the Protectors, and I went to the police review and I said to them, something's got to be done about assaults on police. The sentences are disgraceful, the assaults are as bad, and they said, well, normally what happens is, is that 
we run your story by your chief constable or your force just to make sure you're happy. I said, you don't do that. I said, if they sack me, they sack me, but somebody has got to bring this to the public's attention, the government's attention, the criminal justice system, and also chief constables. So I was the second police officer in history to break from the ranks and demand that police were protected. The original one was a police inspector in 1919. He was disillusioned with how the police were being neglected and failed, and he broke from the ranks. He was sacked, but the police federation was thereafter launched. So that was the first uh, major campaign that I launched, is protect the protectors, giving police a voice, giving police the protection that they need, and it was pretty successful. Um, the government done a U-turn on giving police side handle batons. Um, I also campaigned for stab vis resistant vests, which is what we got. I did the Tomorrow's World, if you remember that program. I was there advising them on that, and also CS Spray. So for the first time since World War II, police were given more than just a small baton and a whistle. They actually had proper batons, stab-resistant vests, mm. and CS spray. And these were, the, these were the type of equipment that would allow us to defend ourselves and tackle criminals that did what they did to me. What an amazing story, and thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Uh, I'm guessing this is the first time in the history of trigonometry you haven't got a joke, a joke yeah, yeah, ready yeah, yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no banter from you. Um, you. You talk about the job being fucked, right? This was what people would say at the time. I don't think there's, certainly in, in living memory, there's been a time where it seems like crime in the streets of London, knife crime, gun crime, the things that you talk about, is worse than it is now. It seems like it's terrible, doesn't it? I mean, we hear about people being stabbed as you were shot all the time. I mean, it's a daily occurrence now. What is going on in the streets of our cities? We've lost control. Um, we used to have control of the streets when I was in the job and I've been retired uh, 10 years now. We actually went out in numbers. Um, we had the numbers, we had the squads. Um, and if a job come in, for example, where I remember taking a Crime Stoppers call, and I think I knew who the informant was, but um, it had come through anonymously, and this guy had attacked his own mother, mother I think it was, or yeah, and punched her in the face, knocked about nine teeth out. He was a dangerous, dangerous man, and I recall taking that, and I turned around and I said to the DI, right, this guy, I know where he is, I've got an address, we need to nick him. He said, right, I want two teams out, who wants to come in tomorrow morning, six o'clock? Any rest day workings, which you know were always great, always added up to the CID um, paid out by a pint or two when we celebrated uh, getting a good job down, or also when we commiserated when we lost a job, which we knew we should have won. Mm. But the point was, we had two teams together. We all went home that night, went to bed. Four o'clock in the morning, we were all up. Two cars, got the equipment we needed, had the right people we needed. We didn't fuck about in those days. Nowadays, you've got a pretty soft police service, some pretty tough ones. In those days, you know, we weren't frightened of challenging anyone. We knew we had the big boys with firearms if we needed them. We knew that we had the clout and the numbers to go round, and we did not fuck about. Uh, we actually did the job. Didn't beat them up. Occasionally, there was a very violent arrest, but we had to use the violence in response 
to the violence that was often portrayed to us. Anyway, on that particular occasion, I remember I, I actually had one of the side adult battles on trial because I was the lead campaigner for it. So I took that one with me and um, I remember the, next, the following morning, we put the door in, other guys went round the back because we make sure they don't escape from uh, windows and doors. Um, and I realized that, you know, if you can even beat your own mother up, and she was very seriously GBH'd, but the point was, we had the numbers to do the job, mm. we had the will to do the job, and we wanted to do it. The sad reality today is over the last 10 years, we've lost almost 22,000 frontline police officers. Theresa May had a bit of a dream job at the Home Office. Nobody really challenged her. And what she decided to do because of austerity is to cut policing. But she cut policing at a time when the mood and the change on the streets of Britain had reached a stage where guns and knives were being used at will. People would get involved in an argument in a pub for argument's sake, or in a park, in a high street, in a club, and within minutes, they'd have a gun. And we had to, we had to deal with that. And more people were carrying knives, more people were carrying uh, guns. And we, we need to be able to deal with that. So what Theresa May did is she started reducing the police service. Hmm. And there's a chap called Sir Tom Windsor. And he was her hatchet man. And it was just before I retired from the police service um, he came in and started making all the cuts, changing the discipline code, and he completely demoralised the British police service. A few years later, as the cuts started to bite in, Theresa May, and I think it was uh, May 2015, she went to the Police Federation Conference, and they highlighted to her the concerns that I'd been highlighting. Ever since I broke from the ranks in the police, I would do hundreds of interviews in my own time, I took a two-year career break to work primarily with victims because after I broke from the ranks and launched Protect the Protectors, the public used to speak to me all over London when I was off duty. And they said, saw you on the television the other day, GMTV, Sky, whatever it is. You really care about what's going on in the streets. You give the police a voice that we haven't got as victims. So strangely enough, I actually launched the Victims of Crime Trust. So I sort of rode two horses. Mm. Mm. I spoke up for the police and also that I spoke up for uh, the victims of crime. One of the points you made to me, Norman, is that a lot of people are living in fear now in our communities. Mm -hmm. to tell us a little bit more about that, because as you say, you deal with victims as well as with, with police officers. Well, every, every time there's a knife attack, it causes fear. It causes fear amongst the gangs, which are not... 100% responsible, the gang sort of, uh, the, the gang stabbing shootings are about 55% and 45% come from other types of crime. But the thing is, there are so many gangs now, I think you've got almost 200 in London and 4,000, believe it or not, nationally, and they're up to about 100 strong. Many carry knives, some carry guns, mainly they, they, they carry knives. But there's a fear amongst those, or fear less, depending which actually you use. And these predominantly children, anywhere between 13 and 19, early 20s, have no value of life. They will carry a gun, not many, but some do, 
or have access to a gun. Many will carry these dreadful looking knives that we so often see on social media. And in answer to your question, why is there a fear? It's because it's happening too often. I mean, once you would say it's too often, but these are happening thousands and thousands of times. And the sad reality is now children are killing children. And in London, which I policed, and I predominantly policed high ethnic areas. So I understand uh, their, their concerns about policing, about the criminal justice system, their attitudes, their likes, their dislikes, their contempt for us sometimes and each other. But every time you have a stabbing and somebody dies, it ricochets around a community. And when you have a stabbing where somebody dies in different parts of London, the ricochet continues. I mean, it's a bit like a cancer, it spreads. And the fear of knife crime or being involved in it or coming across it now controls some people's lives. You know, they won't walk out in the streets on certain, uh, after dark, for example. They won't want to walk the streets in certain areas where there's high knife crime. But these, the, this knife crime has caused a fear that I've never ever seen in 41 years of dealing with the criminal justice system. And it's out of control. And if you go back to what I was just talking about, the police federation, I broke from the ranks all those years ago. On the, I think it was the um, 13th of December, 2004, I was in full uniform. There were some of the highest profile homicide families who had been stabbed to death. And I launched Knives Destroy Lives. I went to number 10 Downing Street, I thought I'd get sacked again, but because a third of the police service had signed my original petition, politicians and chief constables were loathed to sack us. So I could basically do what I wanted within reason. And I always made sure it was done professionally and you know with respect. But I went to number 10 Downing Street, what do you say? And I predicted a knife crime epidemic. Two or three years beforehand, I predicted the gun crime epidemic. And in my penultimate paragraph to the Queen, which I've still got now, I said, unless your government gets its act together, gun crime is going to be epidemic on our streets and more and more children are going to be using guns. And I said, within two years, and I've got the letter and I can prove it, within two years, I was almost spot on. That was what happened. So back in 2013, I'd been stabbed and I took a very keen interest in knife crime. And day in and day out, I dealt with offenders. I dealt with victims, I dealt with the public. Plus, I advised the whole country through national media. Often, I could speak to millions of people at a time. Where they thought they couldn't use force, they couldn't do this, what can they do there? I used to be out, although I knew the law inside out, I didn't want to bore them with acts and sections. I told them what they could and what they couldn't actually do. But there we were, and here we are, all these years on. These stabbings are happening at will. And only a week or two weeks ago, I think there was five, uh, six stabbings, murders in a, in, in a five-day period. Then the following week, there were four shooting murders along with stabbing murders. So in answer to your question, all of these cause fear. And not only that, is that every time, certainly we within policing know, every time it's a gang-related crime, within minutes or hours, the aggrieved gang that has just lost a member or just had a member very seriously injured will be looking for retaliation. They go out on the tube, mopeds, pedal cycles, cars, 
you name it, motorbikes, they will go out looking for immediate revenge. So the public rightly would say, I hope you, the police, are predicting on what they're going to do. But when you've got 200 gangs in London alone, up to 100 strong, we can't watch them all. And we have lost nearly 22,000 police officers. And Theresa May has probably almost single-handedly, with the help of Sir Tom Windsor, who was actually knighted after he crippled the police service, and is now Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, which just rubs all our noses in it. Um, they have all but destroyed British policing, and people say, Norman, <laughs> destroyed British policing? No, we see them, they're still out and about. Well, do you? No, not really. You no. don't see them? You don't. Uh, right, um, I was going to ask because this question, um, because this has been something that people routinely use to critique Sadiq Khan. How much responsibility does he have as London mayor for what is happening on our streets? He has some responsibility. He's obviously like the police crime commissioner for the Met Police. But the government are the ones that got the real big purse strings. The unfortunate thing with Sadiq Khan is he's out of touch. He has his own little niches about air pollution, which I, I know is very important. And he seems to look after his own little groups that he likes. And he's all but ignored uh, knife crime, gun crime. And we within policing and the criminal justice system, certainly campaigners like myself, look to people like him to stand up, speak out, and put in a plan of action to make sure the streets of London are safe. And the sad reality is all we get is window dressing. We get a nice door, we get nice windows, they've got lovely plants in them, and they've got lovely curtains. You actually open the curtains and open those windows. Behind them is chaos on the streets of London. So what Sadiq Khan does is he says, yes, I know there's a problem, but don't worry. Do you realise both he and Theresa May, um, when she was the Home Secretary, wanted to take the Metropolitan Police to court so they would be forced to reduce stop and search. And here we are now, in 2019, both Sadiq Khan and Theresa May are almost pleading the police service to carry out more stop and searches. Because within policing, we said, okay, we'll stop it. The police are not backed up. And when you actually look at the realities, getting back to your knife crime, is certainly within the black community. And the reason I talk about the black community is that is what is happening in London. And anytime anybody wants to talk about a race issue or, or a, a black issue, they're accused of being racist. Well, by telling people the truth, as I see it, by telling people the facts, you're sharing what our concerns are, because often there are people in the black community that share our concerns, but there are also the anti-police groups and community leaders, some of them, that just will never work with the police. So that is the, that is the difficulty that we've always had. But just getting back to that point, just look at all these parents that have had a son stabbed to death. He's gone out. Two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, 14 years of age, 16 years of age, with his mates, often gang members them, themselves, and has lost his life. And he's taken to a mortuary, 
Our mortuaries are filled now with kids all over London and other parts of Britain with children. They've often not got a name, although they have got a name. What they've got is a tag around their big toe with their name and a number. So many of these kids have, big, have got numbers. And when somebody's murdered, a police officer known as a family liaison officer will go to the mortuary with the parents to ID the child if they haven't been ID'd at hospital, which is where uh, it often happens. And there is a child that was alive six hours ago. There is a child that that parent was looking forward to growing up, doing well in life, settling down, having children, and hopefully being for them, being there for them in their old age. And there they are dead. So you've got parents now planning funerals rather than futures. So they, in their bereft state, are falling into the arms of my colleagues in the family liaison units and senior investigating officers pleading with us, please make my son the last one. So the onus is on us. We have to go out and we have to try and make sure that that son is the last one. But we know that that son is not gonna be the last one because dealing with the crimes that we have to deal with, with so few officers. And there are some people that hate the police so much that they would never ever work with us. We know that there are many people in the black community that want rid of these gang members. They want rid of these knifings and shootings. So getting back to your point 20 minutes ago, there is a fear of crime and being victim of a crime that I've never known in 41 years of policing. And I've looked right back to the First World War. I've never seen crime, violent crime, gun crime, knife crime, as bad as it is now, but the thing that concerns me in it even more is that we within policing have the inability to effectively deal with it and reassure the public. And I think we should be honest with the public. If we can't cope, we should tell the public we can't cope. We should tell them the reasons. And if anybody ever believes um, that we don't care, I didn't join the police service and nor does tens of thousands of others to persecute motorists, to stop and search uh, black suspects. That is a small part of the job that we uh, joined to do. But it's an important part of the job nowadays because we have to try and stop these children killing each other. And the sad reality is, and I'm ashamed to say it, because a lot of people do listen to us, whether they take notice or not, I don't know but we've lost the streets of Britain. We've lost the streets of London. And for any police officer or retired police officer to say that, who has a passion about law and order as I do, I dedicated most of my life to policing the streets of London, policing Britain, basically. And for me to be saying this now is it's just like a nightmare. I never thought in my wildest of dreams that I would ever be saying to anybody that ever wants to listen as someone that is a professional law and order campaigner and represents huge numbers of people that the police have lost the streets of Britain. And Norman, you seem to think, or you seem to say that it's, a lot of this is down to austerity. Is it just cuts to the police service or are there other factors to blame as well? It is, it is basically, it, it, that, that is the starting <clears throat> point. That is the heartbeat. That is the heartbeat of where it all started. Um, I mean, Sadiq Khan again said just a couple of days ago 
um, although this will be going out sometime later, so it might be a number of weeks ago, mm. he said a lot of the problems are down to poverty. Well, I disagree. I disagree it's not down to poverty at all. After World War II, you had a country that had fought to keep us safe, that had fought for rights. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of young men and some women lost their lives to give us the freedoms that we've got today, which are often abused. But my point is, they were on ration books then. They didn't have flash cars, iPhones, flat screen TVs, the pubs and the freedoms that they've got now. That was what I would say was poverty. Now you've got kids with the latest trainers, they've got their iPhones, they've got cars, they smoke, they buy their drugs. It's not to do with poverty. It's to do with the freedom of being able to do what they want to do. And some have chosen to commit crime. They've chose, chose to blight the lives of others. And some of these kids, as, which, which really concerns me deeply, is they have no value of life. And it frightens me. Because if you have no value of life, it means that you don't care if you lose your own. You don't care if you lose or if somebody else's, you take somebody else's life. And in seconds, you can stab somebody and you will be serving 20, 25 years in prison and you will have taken somebody's life. And often it's because you're standing on the wrong side of the road. You've shown a bit of disrespect. There's been a bit of drill music. You've taunted each other on social media. I've even represented families. I mean, I've met over a thousand families personally that have had somebody murdered in Britain. Um, I used to represent and very good friends with Sarah Payne, Damalola Taylor, mm -hmm. Denise Bolger, um, Leslie Ann Downey's family murdered by Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. I've met these people, I've stayed with them. I understand the enormity of losing a child. And the public don't. They say how dreadful it is and we spoke a bit earlier on, which I'll clarify now. The public ask us, why doesn't somebody do something? Why doesn't it change? Why does it have to be this bad? And the sad reality is, and this is me basically having a bit of pop at the public, it's because the, the public are apathetic. The public could cause change. On a Monday, you've got issue A. There's been a shooting. Another child has been shot dead. On the Tuesday, something else happens. You know, you've got Donald Trump um, saying something quite outrageous, sending a tweet. Well, so that's my, every day, mate. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But my point is, all the issues that we were, the issues we had concern with on the Monday by the Friday have been forgotten. Mm. And the reason why thousands of people say, Norman, surely if the government know it's that bad, they would do something about it. And I'd say that sounds pretty sensible and straightforward, but let me tell you how it works. The government are like a formidable castle. They're not stupid. They know the psychology of society, and they know that the issues that a lot of people were concerned with on Monday will be gone and changed by the Friday. We never focus on one particular issue. So when people say, why aren't there more police? Why aren't the courts doing their job? Why don't the sentences fit the crime? It's because we never concentrate on one single issue. It's a bit like when you get somebody coming in to become the new prime minister. They will, or even a political party, the MPs will make 
dozens and dozens of promises to lure you in, to hook you in, to vote for them. And then for the next three to five years, everybody's scratching their heads and their bums saying, what about all those things you promised? And that is the scenario. The government are very good on psychology. If ever we could get the whole of Britain to say, stop. What happens on Monday, we will concentrate on. We will make sure that the government listen, they fund it. For example, they might say, we want our 22,000 police officers back. But in addition, we want 10,000 more. And people say, well, hang on a minute, why do you want that 10,000 more? Well, after the Charlie, um, the Charlie, the, the, the uh, journalist that were killed in... Charlie, Charlie Hebdo. Hebdo. Charlie Hebdo, sorry, Charlie Hebdo. After the, I think it was about nine or 12 journalists were shot dead over there, mm. I did the Sky interviews. And when I was doing the interviews, the French police or the French government said, we are going to increase our police establishment by 10,000. We knew within MI5, MI6 and the anti-terrorist squad, we knew that Britain would be hit at some time in the future. So instead of increasing the British police establishment by 10,000, we reduced them by almost 22,000. So when you look out there now, we can't deal with gun crime, knife crime and violent crime. We do a fantastic job on stopping terrorists. But the real reality is, is that under this government, and I am not politically motivated, I am politically homeless. If this government done great, I tell you. But uh, this government under Theresa May has put this country at great risk, not only by terrorism, because we haven't got the numbers to do it, although we certainly have put the, the funding there, but criminals now can walk the streets, drive the streets, walk into people's houses at will, shoot them, stab them, beat them up, steal their cars, steal their bikes, make their lives a misery, and walk off or drive off laughing, and we can hardly do anything about it. I'm angry about it, I'm ashamed about it, and I think the public need to be told the truth, that the police join the police to keep the peace, to interact with them, keep them safe and challenge the, the bad guys. We don't, unfortunately, we don't do any of them. What about the social factors? You and I talked before the interview as well about <coughs> a guy we had on the show, Dr. Tony Sewell, who, who was talking about the breakdown of the family, particularly in the black community mm -hmm. where he's from. Um, and he was talking about the fact that a lot of these kids are growing up without fathers and that they, they don't have a strong male role model. They don't have anyone checking their worst impulses at home. They don't have someone to show them how to be a man in the world. Do you think that's an issue that causes crime as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, when I was in the robbery squad for six years, um, I worked around the clock on dealing with robbers, armed robbers. Uh, not as not as many armed robberies, but that was part of our remit on my squad. Uh, but it was street robberies at gunpoint and in predominantly at, at knife point. And I used to remember when we used to drive a juvenile home because a lot of them were very young, and we used to knock on the door of a housing estate, Stonebridge Park, Acton, you name it, all over London, not any particular place. And we used to knock on the door. Mum used to come to the door and we used to look and see there were two or three other children there and we say by the way he's on bail now he's got to come back to the police station with making further inquiries do you know your son pulled a knife out on someone today 
Um, and if he'd stabbed them, they probably would have been kept in custody. And he terrified them. And mum wasn't nonchalant, but it's as though I can't cope. And we used to drive back to the police station and we used to say to each other in the car, what chance has he got? You know, and what has happened is, and the psychology of a lot of youngsters is, is that dad likes having sex and often he likes having sex with a number of women. No responsibility. So children get into this world, not wanted, not planned. They become part of sex. Well, most people that have sex will take precautions or if they want children, they would have thought, I want a child and I want a child because I want our lives to be better. I want us to pass on to the next generation, a child that's loved, wanted, educated, nurtured. These kids are none of them. And what often happens is they start off when they're like 10 or 11, walking around the, the housing estates. And what they do is they meet like-minded individuals. And because dad's often not been around, they see these other kids as part of their family. Often it will, the crime will start with bullying on the school playground, um, robbing people or taking people's dinner money away. Often enough, they'll then be excluded. Mum can't cope, so when they're excluded, they're walking the streets. It then becomes cash point thefts, stealing money off of people that come from cash points. And then they get known by older gang members um, of being pretty streetwise, and they're recruited to protect the turfs. And before they know it, they've been drawn into a world that they've really almost known nothing. They've got, nobody loves them, nobody wants them, there's nothing to do, they've got energy, they've lost. And that's why they say over the last 10 years we've got lost generation. And the sad reality is they form the gangs that I spoke to you a bit about earlier on. They have, that they have no values, but they actually feel that the people that like them, that need them, want them, that they get something from, are like-minded children. So they become a unit, they become a family unit of criminals. And we've got to disperse these family units of criminals and show them there is another way. And we've got to invest in their futures because this, these, this generation that we're breeding are going to be handing over to the next generation. And if carrying a gun, if carrying a knife, stabbing somebody to death, robbing people at knife point, breaking into their homes, raping people, doing exactly what they want to do, knowing that there are no police to do anything about it. And even our courts, the Youth Justice Board, the magistrates, the judges, they have all become social workers. So getting right back to the beginning of this interview, who cares about the public? Who cares about the public safety? Who cares about the victims? The victims that have been left behind, often with broken lives, maimed. They've had items stolen in a burglary that can never be replaced. It will remain with them forever. The young female that lives on her own. Maybe her underwear drawer has gone through, been gone through by people she deems as grubby hands. Are they going to come back next time and rape her? She will throw all her clothes away. Often, if she can, she will move. Mum and dad may insist it, insist upon it. Who cares about the public and who cares about the victims? We have almost
taken that pendulum and swung it in the favor of the criminal element, and that pendulum is stuck in the roof. And if society wants to see a safer Britain, a better Britain, a Britain where the police patrol and rule the streets on behalf of society, because don't forget, police are not robo-cops, they're not born, as I said earlier on, just to nick motorists to stop black people. They join a job, they're the public. The public are the police, the police are the public. And everybody has got to remember that we're not infallible, we hurt, we cry, we bleed, and sometimes protecting society, we die. And too many police officers now are being assaulted, pretty much like I was all those years ago. And we have got a criminal justice system that cares more about the criminal and their rights, and we hear about it all the time. But I'm not here, I've got nothing to gain by being here, apart from telling people the truth. The truth that they never ever hear because chief constables are never going to tell you we've got a knife crime, we can't cope. Mm. Only a year ago, Cressida Dick, she waited for a, a, a sort of respite period, about six to eight weeks, where the stabbings had gone down. And she came out and said, um, we've got a problem with knife crime, but it's not a crisis. The next day and the day after, there was about four or five stabbing murders. So police chief constables, crime commissioners, they are not going to come on national television or in the media and tell you the truth. They are going to tell you what they think you ought to know. But I think as a caveat to this part of the interview, is if you're honest with the public and you tell them the truth, they will respect you more for it and they will be more willing to work with you to cause change. But the more we hide the true facts from the public, and it's difficult to hide it from them now because they see on a daily basis how bad it is, the less we as a team are gonna make it change. And the, the, the pointer for this is this, is whilst the public, the police, the government, the criminal justice system are all blaming each other for problems that we're all partly responded for, who is concentrating on kids killing each other on homeowners frightened that somebody's going to break into their home or being a victim of crime, when all we do is argue about who's responsible and we don't concentrate on the offenders. If we could cut the fuel off for those that are committing crime, it means that we can take a lot of them away from the bad sort of things in life that uh, they feel sort of gives them some hope, and that is crime. We increase police numbers and concentrate on those that are not prepared to learn. And the cohesion of everyone working together instead of blaming each other might just be the start of the answer that everyone is looking for. Norman, we had Matthew Paris on who, as you, as you know, is a former Conservative MP. And when we were talking about knife crime, because I put these same questions to him, he believed that knife crime was a fad, or is a fad, and it will soon die out. Where do you stand on that? He's a politician, isn't he? Former politician. Former, yeah, I know him. Journalist now. Yeah. Well, I've been a police officer for 31 years. I've been involved in the criminal justice system for 40 years. I've probably done in the region of 10,000 interviews in the national media, not because I'm just angry. It's because I care. And I've researched all of my subjects I sometimes know that the police get things wrong. Have we stopped black people in the past for no reason at all? 
I'm sure we have. You know, we are not infallible, but the point is, I understand what is happening in the criminal justice system, what is happening in the real world. I've dealt with the public, I've dealt with the victims, and I've dealt with policing, the criminal justice system, all the agencies connected within the criminal justice system. And in answer to his comment of it's a fad, I think in the interview I'll tell you exactly how I see knife crime. It started when I was a young PC. I became a victim of it. Mm. I then went to the country and the government to try and stop my colleagues and the public being stabbed or certainly making sure that we had the protective equipment and the courts actually increased the sentences to give a deterrent and it's out of control. 15, 20, 25 years, it's not got better, it's not been a fad, it is now a reality of life on the streets of London and many others in Britain. Before uh, we wrap up the interview, we've probably got about 10 minutes, I wanted to address the race issue because you brought it up a number of times mm. and you and I talked previously about this. Just break down for people, why is there the perception that stop and search is a racist policy? Why is there the perception that the police uh, target and mistreat ethnic minorities? Why is there this sense uh, in some quarters that the police treat people of different ethnic backgrounds differently? We deal, we deal with everybody on the t crime that they commit. Now, the type of crime that a number of young black kids commit in London are street robberies, and these are often at knife point. So, the, so you're saying they commit that crime more than other ethnic groups? Yes, certainly, certainly within, within London. Mm. But you, you then got to say, okay, who's going to deal with that crime? Well, you've got the police. The police have to deal with that crime. It's something we can't ignore. And because it's something we can't ignore, we're interrupting their criminal behaviour. And when we act, when we're interrupting people's criminal behaviour, they don't like it. <laughs> they're not, they're not going to be cooperative. Some are. I've stopped probably two or 3,000 young black lads and, and white lads as well in my 31 years. And one of the myths that everybody sees and they can't quite work out is why so many black children are stopped and searched more than white. Well, here's an example that nobody ever thinks of, and I know, is this. When I was on a robbery squad and we were told seven black youths has robbed someone in Warwick Road, London, for example, I would attend there with my team in an unmarked police car. The area would be flooded with, with uniform cars, area cars, response cars, blues and twos. We get description from the witness and, or, and the victim. And often it will be somebody was wearing a duffel coat, you know, a hoodie, whatever it is, a bandana, you name it. So when we're attending these areas that are highly ethnic areas, we will see people that fit the description. How often has someone said they all look the same, whoever they are, they all look the same in that particular area? Well, when you're a police officer going in there, you are looking and you're thinking, well, he fits a description, so does he. And the other thing what the public don't always know is that when a robbery is committed by a gang, they swap clothes. Mm -hmm. So the descriptions on some are different. So we stop as many as we can. A, they could be a suspect. B, to speak to them, to see who they are, where they, where they have been. That is our job. And I make no apologies that is the job that the public expects us to do and we need to do. But the thing is, under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, uh, 
for stop and search, we have to write down everybody that we have stopped. So just suppose in that incident, we have stopped 40 people, 50 people. All the officers make their notes, they go in to admin. That then goes on to, for the statistics. But during the course of that day, there was 14 or 15 burglaries within that borough or elsewhere. But because the householder was out, we weren't called to that burglary. It was being committed, they got the goods, they had it on their toes. So when they come home, they phone the police and say, in those days, we used to attend every burglary. And they said, oh, we've been burgled. Look, they've done this. Oh, dear me. The dreadful things that a burglary mm. victim feels. We knock on a neighbor's door. We make a few inquiries. We get some CCTV. There was three white youths hanging around outside. There was two white youths. Somebody said, I saw, none of them will be stopped and searched. We will try and get photos. We will put intelligence out of the clothes that they wear for them to be stopped at a later date. But that day, seven or eight robberies might have taken place involving one to seven to 12 black suspects. And we flood the area every time because it's a 999 call. Any unit available. And that is often why the number of stop and searches are high. They're also saying young black men go to prison for, or youth custody for longer than white people. Well, the types of crimes that we arrest them for, such as street robbery with a knife or where someone has been seriously injured, is worthy of a serious stiff sentence. And let me just finish off by saying this. Forget about the black, forget about the white. Let's talk about prisons. We're often told by the government that we've got too many people in prison. Well, let me tell you the two types of people that are in prison. Those that commit serious crime, murder, firearms offences, rapes, stabbing somebody. It's right that they go to prison to punish, to deter, and reassure the public. That is what is important. The second type of people or group of people that go to prison are those that have exhausted all of the alternatives to imprisonment, from a w verbal warning right up to a suspended sentence. And many courts bend over to contortionism not to send people to prison. But like the first one, people have to be deterred, the people have to be punished, uh, other offenders have to be deterred, the public has to be reassured. So they're the two types of people that go to prison. And if they're the two types of people that a magistrate or judge deems have committed such a serious crime or such persistent crime that the public need to be protected from them, how can we have too many people in prison? The true answer is this, is that the government and the criminal justice system, despite all of the introductions of a plethora of community sentences, have failed to find anything that works other than prison imprisonment. And now we're looking at not sending people to prison for offences up to six months. We have no policing on the streets to effectively peace, police. If you're stabbed or shot, we will find officers to come there. So when you first asked me the question at the beginning of this interview, why is Britain in chaos as far as law and order is concerned? I'm privileged to probably be the single person in Britain that has the unique job of being able to speak up on policing, victims, and the public. And if 
I would love to be here telling you that things were far more rosier than they are, but they're not. All of the things that I've told you are from my heart. They're the truth. You can challenge me, and I'm one of these people. I know I'm not slick and smooth, pink and fluffy. I tell you the facts, and I tell you the truth as I see them. And I have a wealth of experience. In over 10,000 media interviews, it's clear that the media and the public want to hear what someone like me hmm. says. And I often tell you what tens of thousands of frontline police officers can't. Senior officers never do, but the public and victims want to. So in conclusion, we can make a difference. We can take the streets back. And we need someone with a passion and a vision, leadership, and someone that can actually stand and look at the battle ahead without getting distracted. And I haven't seen anyone that I can really believe has got those skills. I was going to say, Johnson. I was going to say, I was going to say, it's a, good, it's a good job Boris Johnson's about to be Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, I like the fact Norman isn't laughing and we are, that probably no, says it all. It's a very serious issue, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Boris is not going no, to be that no, person, no, is he? No, Boris is not that man. The f to finish off with, if we've got two minutes. To yeah, we have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go for it. All those years ago when I wrote, wrote to the Queen, <clears throat> I'm just a normal bloke, mm. but I've been gifted with a vision. And when I wrote to the Queen, a five-page letter, hardly any media covered it, I went to Buckingham Palace and I said that um, gun crime will be out of control within two years and committed by children. It was. On the 13th of December, just a couple of years later, uh, 2004, I predicted that we were going to have a knife crime epidemic in Britain and that we needed to act and do something about it. And I wasn't able to ignite the public interest. I got huge media coverage and a double page spread in nearly every uh, 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 sort of the national newspaper. And on the Sundays, I hold the red tops, it was. Um, but nothing ever, ever changed. And here we are, 25 years on, and I've told you about the history of what's happened. We predicted at the Police Federation when Theresa May accused the Police Federation of Crime Wolf that things were getting out of control. Everything I've said, everything the Police Federation that represent the whole police service has said has come true. And we now have 22,000 less police officers to do anything about it. I can put a, a pressure from my angle as I can on the establishment on what they need to do, but they don't listen to people like me. They like to listen to people that they control. But I can leave on a positive, and that's this, is that for the last 10 or 15 years, I've been working on a 10-year plan to revolutionize and turn the criminal justice system around. And because I've spoken about it in the media, the government, some MPs, Sadiq Khan, have all talked about a 10-year plan. The trouble is, none of them know what the 10-year plan is. They just have seen it, and I've had a pop at them and on social media saying that we need the 10-year plan. Well. I've got three of the top retired homicide um, detectives in Britain that are the trustees of the Law and Order Foundation that I have set up. And I've got a vision of a 10-year plan on engaging with the types of children and youths that I've discussed throughout of this interview. And also that we need a national resource centre in Britain 
where victims of crime and the public have got an independent organisation that campaigns and represents them. We also need to build probably five or six respite locations in Britain for families who have been bereaved by homicide. At the time of the murder, often the scene may be at home, so that is the crime scene. They can go somewhere. Pre-trial, some families just need to get away because of the trauma of the trial that's coming ahead. You know, the post-mortem results, the six to eight, 12 week trial ahead, somewhere to go or post-trial or any time thereafter. So they can, 52 weeks of the year, there are people in Britain that have had somebody murdered that can get away from their environment and be in a respite location. I can interact with tens of thousands of retired police officers. Many of them are experts on family liaison and will be there to help them. And the long-term vision, which I'm pretty excited about, but will cost billions, and people say, Norm, you need 50 or 100,000 to start off with. That's what we need. The big project that I want to see within 10 years is every major region in Britain has got a unique, massive, multi-purpose community centre. So these youngsters can get away at every school holiday, maybe 500 or 1,000 at a time, that are monitored or nurtured with role models, with mentors, with retired police officers, bank workers that want to work with youth projects. And London go to Wales, Wales go to Scotland, Scotland go to Cornwall, are you with me? Every school holiday, and these are super community centres with accommodation. And outside school holidays, they're used for community projects every day of the week. Mm. The kids that I've spoken to you about, the youths that have got no value of life, they will lose theirs or take somebody else's. If they're the types of people that are going to give the next generation the type of generation and the types of experiences they've had, what hope have we got for the future? So what is the plan of the Law and Order Foundation? It's massive, but I've got a passion as bigger now as I did all those years ago when I nearly got murdered is we need to cut the fuel off to the young criminals that are carrying knives and guns and blighting people's lives. We're not gonna stop them all, but we can stop a lot. Turn them away, let's get them, let's get mentors, let's give them something positive to do. Let's concentrate on the others that won't learn their lessons. And let's make sure that people can live in their houses, walk the streets, travel on transport, knowing if they're a victim of crime, there will be police officers that will turn up, that will listen to them. We won't always make the arrest, but at least they know that their plea for help has been heeded. Without these extra 22,000, and I think it should be 32,000, I'm afraid we've got a long, long struggle. So I will continue to fight the good fight, and often enough, I often feel as I'm on that battle line on my own. Just imagine if I told you on that Monday, if we can get the whole country just to concentrate on that one issue, and this is, where the, this is where MPs and the rest of them can learn. Make one promise to the public and keep it, rather than making dozens and keeping none. And you might be, find yourself a very popular po political party and politician. Well, we might even see it in our day <laughs> happening. If ordinary people are watching this or listening to this, how can they get involved with the Law and Order Foundation and help you? 
They can follow us on Twitter. I'm, I'm at Norman Brennan, but it's also Law Order Found. They will find that on Twitter as well. Um, and it's time really for everybody that really says, I wish somebody could do something. You can. It's you. It's you. We can all make an effort. I mean, I have got a passion and I've got a vision and I'm a leader. I'm a businessman now myself outside the police. I've always led by example and I know that we could turn the criminal justice system around. I believe that we can turn around the perception of crime, the fear of crime and the reality of crime and that we can actually start making the streets of Britain safer. But the longer we blame someone else for the problems that we're all partly responsible for, the longer it's gonna take. And it's a bit like a wound. You put an elastoplast over a gaping wound, it's gonna fester and it's not gonna, it's not gonna heal well. You actually put the investment in to getting that wound cleaned, stutured, rested, nurtured with the follow-up uh, treatment that wound at the end of the day, you'll still see it there, but that will, that will heal much quicker. If the government invest in policing and then in the criminal justice system, and we have magistrates and judges that actually start caring a bit more for the safety of society and for victims of crime, rather than becoming social workers and making excuses why they don't punish and deter young offenders and other offenders from committing crime, I'm afraid we've got no hope. So. I always believe we've got hope. We must always look for that shard of light. And believe you me, I've been on my knees at time. I know what it's like to be in absolute despair. But the thing is, when you go to bed one day and you feel shit, there's many people out there that have got up that felt shit the day before or the week before that have woken up and said, I feel a bit positive today. And the more that you get more and more people going to bed feeling shit, but the next day they get up feeling more positive because they can actually see a Britain where they actually will feel safe. They will know that if they're a victim of crime, there will be police there for them. And they know that it will never be a perfect world. Even if we don't nick them, at least if we turn up and they are felt to be important, which they all are, victims are important. Why is it we only turn up for the offenders and we rarely ever turn up, if at all, for the victims? That's not what I joined the police service about, and that is not what the criminal justice system's about either. We've got time for one more question. And we always have to, yeah, absolutely. And Norman, what is the one thing that we're talking about that we really should be talking about? I think if I was to give a message to the people of Britain, is wake up from your apathy. You're all concerned. You all want answers. There are answers out there. I'm concerned like you are. But the more that you leave your head buried in the sand, the bigger the problem is going to be and the longer it's going to take to make sure that the streets of Britain are safe once again like they used to be. Britain has always been renowned throughout the world of having the best police service and the best criminal justice system. The sad reality is we've gone down the, we've gone down the ranks quite a bit. And that blue light that used to shine bright in Dixon and Dot Green days, okay, policing has changed has almost gone out. Let's clean the glass, let's make it bright again, and by doing that, we can actually make sure that there are police officers there for the public, the public for the police, we can interact with everybody, 
and everybody can actually start working as a team. Because as I said to you a little while ago, the more we blame someone else for the problems that we're all partly responsible for, the less we're going to have time to concentrate on those that are blighting society's lives. Well, Norman, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Uh, as always, I, I'm sure you'll agree with me, this was another great uh, interview. Uh, very funny and lighthearted this week. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I'm joking, of course, Norman, but we really appreciate your time. And I think it's a very important message. So uh, follow Norman. He'll be doing uh, fundraising. And uh, you know, if you're watching this and you're an influential person, please make sure you heed some of the things that Norman has said to us. Uh, as you can tell, this is someone who says what they actually know and, and think. Uh, we will see you in a week from now. Thank you very much for tuning in as always. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.